You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan, I'm a game studies scholar from Germany, and you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Today we're going to have a conversation about motion capturing. It is one of these parts of video game development and the video game industry that I've never been much in touch with. You know when you watch a super amazing cutscene in a video game and you just think, wow, this was so amazing, so compelling, so emotional, so involving. Part of the reason why you might experience it as such is there's probably really good motion capturing involved, at least in the last, I would say, 10 to 15 years motion capturing has really become a very essential cornerstone of video game development. That's exactly what we're going to be talking about in an interview with Jimmy Corvin, who's had lots of experience in the domain of motion capturing. We're going to go into the fascinating aspects of motion capturing, how exactly it works, and the intricacies, maybe even the misconceptions that revolve around the technology and the implementation of motion capturing in the process of video game development. But before we go into that, let me briefly remind you that if you like this show and you want to help us make it happen, then you can do that by supporting us on Studying Pixels Plus. There you will get all of our episodes entirely ad-free. You'll get a lovely sticker and monthly plus episodes. And you know what? We have debated internally a little bit about whether we should make more tiers available for Studying Pixels Plus, because usually it's $5 a month, and we thought it might be appealing to offer a lower entry tier and a higher tier just for people who want to give us some extra support. So what you can do is you can sign up for Studying Pixels Plus for now just $3, and you will get everything except for the sticker, because the sticker obviously costs some money to produce, and with $3 a month, that simply doesn't suffice. Or you can pay more if you want to. It's kind of a pay-as-much-as-you-want model. You can also subscribe for $10 a month if you have a little bit more of expendable income and you want to just really support us in making this show happen. So if you're curious about that, then feel free to head over to studyingpixels.com plus to find out more. We would be eternally grateful. 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. 
Okay, so today we're going to talk about motion capturing with Jimmy Corvin. He worked as a business development manager at the motion capture studio House of Moves for about 11 years. And they got a really impressive portfolio. I went through their website and I looked at all the stuff that they had done. They were very active in the domain of films, like they worked very closely with Marvel. For example, if you watched Spider-Man or Iron Man, but even things like the Men in Black films or Kong Skull Island, uh, these are really like high-profile productions that they were involved in. And the same really goes for video games. They worked on Resident Evil 7 Biohazard, on Mortal Kombat, on Dragon Age Inquisition, on God of War, on Call of Duty, and so many, many more video games. Really interesting. Now, Jimmy Corvin, he actually has left House of Moves, and he now works at Room 8 Group as an enterprise sales director. Room 8 Group is kind of a major development studio that contributes to titles such as Control or The Crew 2. In other words... What I'm trying to say is that Jimmy Corvin has lots of experience under his belt, specifically, but not only, in the domain of motion capturing. And we're going to talk about the magic of motion capturing and why he ultimately decided to change direction and take a different path. I'm very happy that he's here with us now. Hey, Jimmy. Hi, Stefan. Motion capturing is a bit of a niche field, you could say, a very specific kind of domain to work in when it comes to video game development. So I would be curious, what got you into motion capturing? What was the kind of, do you have a kind of spark that told you that's what I want to do? Kind of. Um, so the spark was, uh, as I was finishing my master's, um, I knew I wanted to be in the video game space and I knew I wanted to find some way to break into the industry. It's a very difficult industry to work in for the first time. Um, and in my struggles to work with like a developer um, immediately, uh, I started to look for avenues that are kind of game adjacent. Uh, and that led me to motion capture, uh, where a friend of mine happened to work for a company that makes cameras and software. And so I could talk to him about kind of breaking into the industry that way. So it was kind of your way to get closer to video game development. Exactly, exactly. Uh, my life before motion capture um, or games in general was in finance, which almost couldn't be further away from <laughs> game development. Um, and so I just wanted a way to be as close as possible to making games. Was there anything particularly fascinating about motion capturing? Because to me, as someone who's not really initiated and who doesn't see the process, but only the end result in the game, it has something quite magical to it. I still remember the times when games transitioned into motion capturing as a predominant technology that was employed. And it was like, wow, it, for the first time, it looks now like they're actual people, actual actors, actual characters on the screen. Yeah, uh, it, it, I had that same kind of sense of wonder the first time I saw it. You know, I visited, I mentioned a friend of mine worked for a company and visiting him at work, stepping out on stage, seeing this massive volume with lights everywhere and you look up on screen and the person who's on stage waving their arms, I see the character up on screen waving their arms and my mind was just blown. I mean, granted, this is more than 10 years ago and so things have gotten significantly nicer looking, but I just couldn't believe that something existed where 
somebody could put on what looked like a funny looking suit and all of a sudden, you know, Mario is up on screen waving just like the the the, the actor was. And it my like I immediately fell in love. So but the key principles of motion capturing they still remained largely unchanged, right? You still have a room that is basically a, like has a green screen or blue screen or something, and then a car- a, an actor with a suit with these little bobs glued onto it. Yeah, the general principles are the same. Um, the accuracy and the fidelity is kind of what's gotten better. Um, and I guess I should mention the weight and size is what's changed. Yeah. And that is to the actor's benefit more than anybody else. Was it like heavy to to wear such a suit at first? It it wasn't necessarily so the suit that they wore on their bodies. It was more that the the markers, that's the little balls that look like ping pong balls. Um, they used to be very very large and solid. So if you fell, they weren't fun to necessarily fall <laughs> on. Um, and now they are very small, say six ish millimeters and squishy, um, and the the weight side is for facial capture where you have a camera on somebody's head where they used to put three or four pounds on somebody's head. And when your head weighs eight pounds, roughly um, adding that much weight can cause substantial strain when you're trying to shoot for eight hours a day. Um, and so now that they're down under about a pound or so um, it, it makes it a lot easier on the actors. So they are basically at least two different technologies at work, if I understand this correctly. One that tracks these little ping pong balls on the body and the other one that tracks the facial expression specifically? Yes, exactly. Um, and so the the body, uh, we put these, these markers all over the body to capture your joints, uh, specifically how the bones uh, of your joints are moving. And then a separate technology is you wear a helmet, they're called a head mounted camera, and it has about a uh, one foot metal bar on it with a camera pointed straight at the actor's face. Um, And it's just capturing nothing but the facial movements to get kind of that really expressive look that, that actors have for their characters. But how do you get the movements of a real life person to translate into this let's say, fully animated character. Because you mentioned Super Mario earlier, and uh, the physique of Super Mario is significantly different from the physique of any actor that you could possibly hire. So Mario is actually a bad example. Uh, I should not have used that at the beginning because (laughs) Mario isn't somebody that I would typically recommend you use motion capture for. Uh, The more realistic that somebody moves or something, we can capture animals, um, the more realistic that the end result is going to be, the more likely that motion capture is an applicable technology to use to move you closer to a better product. Um, And so when you look at games like Last of Us, for example, where you're talking about very like extremely human looking humans. Um, in fact, the actors and actresses look a lot like their characters. Um, that is when you're going to get the best results. Uh, worst results are when you're going from somebody like Mark Ruffalo to the Hulk, where the proportions are wildly different. And there are reasons that I can get into for like why you should still use motion capture. But transferring Mark Ruffalo's performance into the Hulk is a, is a, uh, it's a tougher ask. It's a tougher um, task for the animators 
after we've captured everything. So basically, you've got a uh, uh, like uh, the, the captured material, and then you've got to do the animation work in order to translate it to a, an actual character that is on screen. Because you said, I mean, obviously there must be a reason why people use motion capturing, and it's probably to save the animators time, right? Because otherwise they would have to animate every single thing individually. Exactly. So there's there's a couple different reasons of why we use motion capture. One is certainly to save time. Um, getting Giving a, uh, an animator a shot that has, let's just say me walking across the, the room just to get a walk cycle for, let's just say, gameplay reasons. Um, it's not going to be perfect. Uh, motion capture uh, is not an end result. It is, it is a step in the production pipeline. Um, and an animator does still need to finesse each shot to make sure it works within what's necessary for the game. Now the fidelity is getting closer and closer. So 10 years ago when I started, um, body motion capture might get you 80% of the way to final. Nowadays, it might be closer to 90%. So, you know, we're just chipping away at percentages of what we consider final, but there still is always going to need to be an animator there to make sure that everything fits within what's necessary for the game. If we talk about such things like such basic things like walking animations, I've, I've just been wondering, um, is that basically a looped animation? Because if I walk around as Joel in The Last of Us, then I technically can walk around infinitely and the animation will still always continue playing. Exactly. Um, so what we'll do for in-game motions um, are capture move trees. And that is you capture everything that you think you need a character to do and the game engines like Unreal will loop that animation. So for example, one day for Joel's animation will be step on stage and tell the actor, walk forward, and then walk forward, turn right 90 degrees, walk forward, turn right 45 degrees, walk forward, turn right 180 degrees. Now do the same thing with left and then do the same thing with walk forward and then jump, walk forward and then duck. And so it's all these different uh, combinations of things that you could do with the character and the game engine will then create blends so that you can, so that it loops and blends so that either you walk infinitely. So it just loops and loops and loops, or if it needs to, it blends into walk infinitely and then jump at the end of it. And unreal will, will, when you give it the right pieces, we'll figure out how to make all those blends work together. Now, that is, of course, a tremendous amount of work, uh, just like game development is in general. I was wondering, where does motion capturing come in in the process of developing a video game? Because, of course, I need to have first an idea of all the things that the character ought to be able to do. And I need to have some form of script so that I can shoot cutscenes and stuff. Uh, at which point does it come in in the process of the entire scope of game development? It comes in in three different parts. One is at the very beginning. Uh, where they're shooting uh, what we call animatics. Um, and that's basically a very, very early rough look at the whole story cinematic. Um, and they'll bring in, it doesn't need to be the final actors, but they will bring in actors and basically hand them the script and say, we're going to run through this whole thing and just really roughly see what it looks like on screen. Um, and so you put it, it tends to be gray characters with in a gray area with boxes that represent tables and you know tall sticks that represent trees stuff like that it's like incredibly 
low fidelity, but it shows you on screen where all the story beats are. Um, the next step is starting to capture game gameplay, which is once you're in production, you're ga- you're capturing all that in-game stuff. You're capturing fights if you need to do fights. You're capturing reloads for um, first-person shooters. Um, and once the script is more or less done, the story is locked. That's when we go back into the studio and say, okay, here's the real talent. We need to dedicate a day to one minute, two minutes of cinematics. And we're going to try to get that much done in one day. And the third part, because you said something comes in at the third part as well. Oh, I'm sorry. The first part was uh, at the very beginning. The The animatics? The animatics. The second is the gameplay, which kind of happens fluidly from around when you're shooting animatics through production. And then the third part is shooting the cinematics, shooting the story beats, which happens after a lot of things are locked in the game um, and you already know all the story beats. So it, it's kind of, there's a lot of overlap, but are, they are three different portions of the game of the game design. I find that super interesting because of course, when I think of motion capturing, I immediately think of bombastic cutscenes or very like emotionally resonating moments such as in uh, in these The Last of Us cutscenes. But of course, as you mentioned, a lot of other things and minor details need to be captured as well. The is the the loading animation in a first person shooter is that something that's typically motion captured? Yes, like reloading a gun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so you're you're starting to hit on. Um, a very gray line in the motion capture space, which is whether or not you want correctness or accuracy. And I know that sounds weird, uh, or sorry, not accuracy, authenticity. Um, And I know that sounds weird because something that is correct should also be authentic. But when you're reloading a pistol, for example, I don't know the names of all the pistols, but pretend it's a, a real pistol that is reloaded a very specific way. We will capture, we'll, they'll bring in somebody who knows how to reload this specific pistol and capture them doing it so that when you're playing Call of Duty, for example, when you reload the pistol, it looks like a Marine would look if they were reloading this pistol. The other aspect of this is authenticity, which comes more on the cinematic side, where we want an authentic, um, an authentic performance from the actors. And what we're getting is more than their motion, even though it's technically motion capture. I call it capturing the human frequency. Um, And what we're really doing is trying to capture the essence of what the actor is putting into this character. And a really good example of this, to go back to Last of Us, is Ashley Johnson as Ellie. Um, She, the, the character of Ellie, was written to be much more passive not necessarily quite like as sassy as she comes off in the game. And the, the actor, Ashley Johnson, just on set throughout development, began to put more and more of her own personality into Ellie. And the writers and the producers caught on to this and are like, that's that is now Ellie. This is like this is our Ellie. We need we need this to be our character. And so Johnson, Ashley Johnson's personality ends up blending into Ellie. The character becomes more sassy up to and including there are entire parts of the game of the first last of us where 
Ellie is supposed to stand around and just kind of like idly watch Joel help her out of a situation. And they rewrote it so that she's, so that she's involved the whole time because that's Ashley's personality for Ellie. And what they captured there is Ashley's human frequency. And it became the character. That's an impressive part of the artistry, right? Of working with actors where you try to identify where their strengths lie, what their personalities are, what they bring to the character. Mm -hmm. Can I imagine that in motion capturing that there is some wiggle room for improvisation and such things? That it's just basically like shooting a film that you say we shoot this or this scene and we shoot it several times and maybe you throw in a line here or there or a movement here or there? Absolutely. Uh, in fact, that's typically a planned part of, of motion capture production um, is we call them pickups. That's That can be correcting something that was wrong or just letting somebody ad-lib a little bit. Um, you know, they'll hand the actor the script, they'll perform it to the script And even if they get it right, a lot of times we'll do a second or third shot and say, do what you need to do, feel it out, add what you need to add, take out what you need to take out and just see what kind of works. That must be a lot of material that's being recorded. Is it like, in, can I imagine it's similar to film production that you basically have like a completely absurd relation between the things that actually end up in the game and the things that are being shot and eventually just thrown away? Yes, Uh, it's, it's probably significantly less than, I shouldn't even say probably it is less than movies. Um, games teams tend to come on set. Uh, I don't want to say more prepared, but because they already live in the digital space, um, all the time, game developers already live in the digital space all the time. There tends to be a lot, uh, less experimentation on stage, trying to figure out what this is going to look like, you know, when you've finally print it. Um, so, but there is, you know, a fair amount that get, ends up getting thrown away. Um, I can give a, a, a personal example of working on resident evil seven, where there's, I think it's the second or third chapter of the game. Um, uh, there's a big family dinner. You're, you're kind of introduced to all of the characters that are, that are in the mansion. And it's a big, like four minute scene. And we shot that on three different, three different times. So three different dates, three different ways. And each time was just throwing away, not throwing away, cutting hours and hours and hours and hours of work and animator time. And it's just, it wasn't right. It was close. And each time they liked it on set. And then we got to like, this is finally what they want. And At the end, it wasn't the right scene for the game, so let's shoot it again. So they would just they would review the material because obviously, then uh, the, these are studios that give the motion capturing to an external team, and that basically is contractually tied. And you deliver the footage and the animation work, and then they review it and they say, "Ah, <laughs> you did this again." <laughs> It's, it's less about, typically it's less about the work that the motion capture company does and more about this isn't the right story for this part of the game. Like they changed how many people were at the table one time. They changed massive lines, like the, the direction at the table sometimes. And so even when the script is locked and you're in and you're kind of performing everything, changes still happen as the game starts to come together and it's like, 
well, we're going to throw away that five minute scene that we've already shot and animated. And it's basically done for all intents and purposes. Uh, Let's do it all over again. Would you say that generally motion capturing for films, which you also have lots of experience in, and motion capturing for video games, are these processes, do they feel different when when doing them? They feel pretty different. Uh, technically speaking, they're, they're identical. Uh, you know, I use the exact same technology and processes for Resident Evil, for example, as I did for any Marvel movie that I've worked on. So the technology is the same. The pipelines are more or less the same. Um, the difference is working in a space where you can see what's going on. That is, on a, a game set, typically the teams will come in and want to show the actors, here's what Ellie looks like, here's the clicker that she's running away from, and you can see all that on the screen. And movie teams will come in and tell Mark Ruffalo to go back to the Hulk example, like, hey, you're going to pick up a taco in this scene. Just <laughs> pretend you're picking up a taco in in um, Endgame or something like that. and there's not really any reference footage. So there's a lot more theater feel to a lot of movie shoots that we do, assuming that we're not shooting on a set um, where, you know, there's set pieces all around and they're just going to put somebody into a live scene. I assume that you have often like some kind of replacement objects, like when people hold something that you would give something into their hand, even though it's not actually eventually in the animation. Yes, exactly. So in on the mocap set, the things that we care about that aren't really there are touch points. Anything that an actor is going to physically touch, we need to have something that gives the same amount of resistance. So if you're going to lean up against a wall, it can't just be like a flimsy board that they're going to fall through. You want something there that they can lean up against to kind of give that weight of the performance. Um, and then the other side is eyelines. Um Going back to the Hulk, Hulk is a massive uh, creature and you don't want the actor looking Mark Ruffalo in the eye. You want the actor who's acting against Mark Ruffalo to look Hulk in the eye. So there will, it is typically somebody's job or they'll make something to hold something above the Hulk and say, here's where Hulk's eyes are. Look at, look at that ball on a stick instead of Mark Ruffalo and they have to act against this ball on a stick. <laughs> it impresses me very much, this this level of abstraction. For me, as someone who's got only very limited uh, acting experience, I must say, <laughs> I imagine it to be so difficult when you basically just sit there and maybe you have even shoots where you have to interact with a character that is not actually, the, the actor is not actually on set or something, and it's like, you know, with a delayed time or something. That must be so difficult. Yeah, uh, and I've gotten the same feedback from actor act from actors that have a lot of experience uh, of the the actors that tend to pick up motion capture the quickest are those trained in theater, um, and that's because theater actors are used to using their imagination to put all the pieces into place. Yes, on a stage, you see, you know, a, a painted. Uh, two by four or something and know that that's a tree and you're kind of imagining that. But theater actors are used to using with like very used to working with very minimal visual stimulus. Um, and so they can kind of put themselves into that place. Hold up. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now, what would you say, what are the common like misconceptions about motion capturing because it sounds on paper it sounds so easy you've got a person they wear the suit the light reflects off the little balls and then you get all the thing an animator fixes it up done it's like it seems like a fairly easy thing but i assume it is not that simple right uh, the biggest misconception is that when we hit cut on the mocap stage that that is ready to go into the game um and it's because behind the scenes tend to show side by side of here's what it looked like on stage. Here's what it looks like when you saw it on screen. And there's very little showing anything that happens in between, but the in-between is somebody somewhere has to go through every shot and track every one of those little markers. So we tend to be about 50 markers on the body on every frame, somebody has to go through and say, I can see every one of those 50 markers and they are in the right place for every single frame of every single shot. And then somebody needs to go and put it, put that, that information onto the character. Let's just go back to Joel. 
And that's when you hand it off to an animator. And then an animator turns it into what you finally see. And that is months and months and months of work. Do you have to do this manual work of tracking these balls? Because it could happen that there's some kind of light reflection and the camera doesn't detect it? Yes, or um, there's switching. It's called swapping. Uh, that happens where every marker that's on your body has its own name. So like your right front shoulder marker has a very specific technical name. And because the system is imperfect, it's very accurate, but it's imperfect. Every once in a while, it'll swap that right shoulder with its left shoulder. And, so and that would look to, very weird in the animation. Exactly. Actually, it just wouldn't, it, it would end up twisting the arm. Like it would twist your arm 180 degrees and... So somebody needs to go through and fix that, make sure that it's correct and that it's, each dot is named the, the correct, uh, its correct name. Um, and that's when you can kind of push it through the pipeline once all the dots are in it, their correct place. How do you account for things like clothing items? Because when you wear the mocap suit, then it's literally, it's just a suit. It's a tight-fitted suit to track your bones and your joint movements. But then a character like, I don't know, in Devil May Cry, where it's like a long scarf, that is then a manual animation that is brought in later. It's probably, especially for the scarf in Devil May Cry, that is probably an automated, um, we call it simulation. It's called cloth sim, for, to use jargon. Um, but clothing in general is done after we've captured the, the, the body of the actor. You kind of hit on it that what we're capturing in the motion capture process is the bones that are, I mean, certainly not for the face, but in the bones that are in your body, that's what we're really capturing. We're not capturing any of the muscle mass. Um, so if you flex on stage, you're the character's not all of a sudden going to have, you know, a bicep that bulges a little bit that needs to be added in afterwards. Um, and so once we have all the body movement, then you have somebody create cloth um, and you give it some kind of physics simulation. Every engine functions differently. And so for a scarf, they go through and say, make sure it's very, very flowy and it can't collapse in on itself. And so you throw the scarf on the animation that you were captured on set and kind of just look at it and hope that it works. And when it doesn't work, they go back to Colossum and say, okay, I need to add more constraints so that it works properly. What was your, your, your favorite motion capture shoot? And what was your least favorite motion capture shoot? And it doesn't have to be like, you don't have to say something super negative about any. And I know, of course, that every kind of, uh, every motion capture shoot, I assume, has its own challenges and its own demands. But can you give us a little bit of insight into these specifics? Yes. Um, so my favorite is unfortunately not game related. Um, and it was all subject matter. Um, but I did, I, I worked on the, uh, VR accompaniment to Elton John's farewell tour. Um, and I got to basically sit in a room with four other people and get a private show from Elton John for four hours straight. It was just like one of those moments that I, I noticed myself put my phone down so that I could be in the moment. Not that I was recording uh, that's, that wouldn't be allowed. Uh, there's massive NDAs, but it was, a moment and it, this has happened multiple times in while I've been in motion capture that 
I, I just felt myself feel like I need to be in this moment so that I accurate, like, so that I remember this. I don't want to look at this on my phone. I want to remember this. Um, and it was just a, such a visceral, like feeling to be in that room. Um, as far as least favorite, uh, I, I certainly won't name names, but we were shooting a game. It was an, an indie title and they showed up without talent and the person who was doing all of the art direction was going to be the talent. They were making a medieval game and you were watching somebody who is not a trained medieval artist try to simulate swinging a broadsword on stage, <laughs> kind of fumbling all over himself, try to use a bow and arrow and like not really pull it all the way taut. And like the, the data is real and you can, you spot mistakes in the data and you looking at the data, he's supposed to be, you know, a, a, an, an ace archer. And instead what we got was somebody's arms trembling to, to draw this bow. And it's just, it, it was so hard to make that data look usable that I, I don't know what else to say. Um, I'm not actually certain whether the game actually came out or not, but it was it was one of the toughest things to sit and watch. So I'm like, this could have been avoided for $500. Get an actor who is looking for work that at least has the strength to do all these things. Um, and it just didn't end up happening. So this basically means that if you have someone who's not well-trained or maybe not competent in the specific uh, moves that they need to deliver, then that means more work for the animation team afterwards to basically fine tune and to bring it up to a standard so that you could say now it is usable. Yeah. Uh, so the when you don't have very good data, you end up doing uh, a process which is called keyframing. Um, and I won't get into kind of the, the technical aspect of that, but in general, you're going frame by frame, typically 30 or 60 frames per second. You're going frame by frame and an animator is putting the character into specific poses. So in the instance of an archer, like pulling the arm back and making it so that the archer is, is drawing this bow with some strength behind it. Uh, it's a very labor intensive process. It's why animation tends to be very expensive. Um, and you end up throwing away a lot of the motion capture data in favor of, of keyframe just to make this thing look right. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that things went wrong. I'll add this of like when we work on Mortal Kombat, for example, a lot of that game, all, all those, all the Nether Realms games are motion captured and it's easy to think like people can't do those superhero moves and they're absolutely right. People cannot do those. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you still motion capture it because a human's attempt at a lot of those moves will give you some very important key poses that the character needs to strike or hit, even if the timing is all wrong or they don't get there, you know, with, uh, with any kind of grace. Um, it, it ends up giving you really nice poses that are natural to the character. So we'll work with NetherRealm, shoot these moves that humans could never possibly do on their own. And then an animator goes in, throws away like 
80 or 90% of the motion capture, but keeps some of these key poses and animates around those. And then so an actor would just like basically jump into the air and then an animator would go in and would make the jump like three times as high, for example. Exactly, or add three flips in the process. But like you got <laughs> the like leaving the ground and then you got the strike and then you got the like hero landing pose. And as long as you get those three animators can kind of figure out everything else in between. Now, clearly you are super passionate about motion capturing, which is why I have to ask, why did you leave the domain of motion capturing? Because I know you're now working at a different position and you're no longer involved directly in motion capturing. How did that decision come about? I wanted to be, I, I followed my passion. Um, I am passionate about motion capture. Um, I am more passionate about games. Uh, my current company is all games all the time. I love movies as much as the next guy, TV, all that stuff. Um, but my passion is with video games. And so the the decision, while a very dif difficult one, uh, was definitely to be closer to games. Um, and now when people ask me what I do, um, it is I talk to people about video games for a living. And like, that's a really great feeling. You know, the people on the podcast can't see it, but like a smile goes on over my face. Every time somebody asks me, what do you do? Because uh, it's just like, yeah, I get to talk to people about video games. Yeah, me too, actually. It's a good yeah. job. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so very much for coming by. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. That was Jimmy Colvin about motion capturing in video games. If you want to find out more, you can do that. You can, for example, go to the website of House of Moves. Their website is just moves.com. It's very easy to memorize. And his current employment is at Room 8 Group. That would be Room 8, as in the, the number 8, room8group.com. Also, as always, thank you out there very, very much for listening to this episode. Of course, you can, as always, submit your thoughts and questions on studyingpixels.com slash contact. And you know what? Actually, the reason why this interview with Jimmy even came about is because Jimmy joined our Studying Pixels Discord server. So if you're curious and you want to join this community as well, you're very much invited to do so. It's entirely free, right? No strings attached. You can do that by going to studyingpixels.com. Just click the follow us button on the website and you will have the option to click on Discord. It will directly throw you into our server. Looking forward to see you there and we'll talk again next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.